um, we want to welcome you here again and glad that that you're here and fall really is coming and um, we're starting a new series this weekend. It's called The Fridge. I'll explain that to you in a little bit about what that's all about. Um, and this series really kind of is, was distilled from um, some time I had off this summer, um, got to have some vacation time and, and we all need that from time to time. So I don't know what you do on vacation and we, we went to the beach for a little bit, but um, I've, I have a house that is exactly one year older than I am. And so I, you know, I can barely keep myself together, but my house is even older. So it just takes a lot of work, you know, always trying to, every summer is just filled with projects. And so this summer, as I went into vacation time, I had all these projects and, you know, kind of figuring out what I'm going to do, limited time, lots of things to do. And uh, so my wife and I, we've been married for 26 years and she's been through this a few times. We're very different personalities. And so um, I was kind of figuring out what I'm going to do and what projects have to be done. And one evening she sat down with me and she said, right, as vacation was beginning, so what are you doing on vacation, right? Besides, you know, going to the beach, what are, what are you doing around here? What projects are you doing? And I thought that was weird because she never asks me about that kind of thing, you know, but I knew, I knew where it was coming from. So um, I've shared this with you before, but there's kind of two things about me. We're all unique, right? Right. So we're all, you know, no one's judging here, but I'm a, so I'm a little bit introverted. I'm not like, I'm not like painfully introver- introverted, but I, you know, I'm the kind of person where if I could take, if somebody said, well, you could spend the day on your deck in the sunshine, uh, you know, if that was happening and you could read a book or you could go to a party, I'd be like, I'll take the book. Thank you. You know, I'll be turning pages. And, um, and it's just not generally speaking, I'm way more comfortable, um, just being at home than I am being in a crowd of people. But and, and the other part of my personality is this. I'm very, I'm very task-oriented. So um, I always have to have a task. I always have to have boxes to check off. I always, one of the funnest things about doing a project is actually planning the project and putting the project together and administrating it. I love doing that stuff. So, you know, as vacation comes, I'm doing that. So one of the things I had to do is I had to refinish our deck this summer. And we have a, a deck, it's about 17 by 40. And in the summertime, we live on that deck. There's a lot of stuff going on and it was time to refinish it. So I needed to get it done. So I've been thinking and planning and my wife kind of picked up on this. She knew it. So she says one night, so what's your plan for the deck? And I'm kind of like, well, you know, I don't know. I'm just going to do the deck. Well, when are you going to do the deck? Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, I've got some time off. I'm not in a hurry, but, you know, usually. And she, because she knows what this means, given my personality, she knows that without any warning at all, one morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be like, everyone get out of the way because I'm doing the deck today, right? And I'm kind of, when you have a personality like mine, it's kind of like you get up in the morning, you put your head down and you just plow forward, right? And, and for me, I'm just always being so task-oriented. I, I have to admit, I'm not always really clued into my environment and what's going on and feelings and stuff. I'm just like, I got to get that box checked off, you know? So I'm like getting down and get, she's like, so I don't really want to do that this summer. And I'm thinking like, why not? <laughs> it's a good way to live. And she's like, yeah, it's only good for you. Right? So anyways, I'm like, okay, well, I, you know, I got to do the, I got to do the deck. Well, what's involved? Well, I got to get everything off the deck. We have a lot of stuff. We have lots of plants and big potted bamboos and, and um, we got uh, barbecue and table and umbrellas and fountain and all that stuff. Okay, so how are you going to do that? Well, I was just going to get up and get it off, you know? Well, who's going to help you? Well, I, you know, I, that's complicated. Well, no, why don't you have us help you? Well, I know, but then I'll have to, you know, I'm thinking, well, then I can't just get up one morning and just decide I'm going to do it. She's like, yeah, that's, that's right. You'll have to actually plan it out. Well, I got to send out, you know, I got to check the kid's schedule and stuff. Well, what, what morning do you want to do it? Well, okay, we'll do it, you know, we'll do it Tuesday morning. So Tuesday morning, get up and everyone comes out and we clear off the deck. Now, the thing I'm thinking while we're clearing off the deck, before we clear off the deck, I'm like, this is going to be so complicated, you know? And then as we're clearing off the deck, I'm like, well, it's kind of fun. We're all here. We're all doing it together. And by the way, uh, I, you know, I can like have the boys lift the heavy stuff. And so we got everything off the deck and I was like, well, that was really kind of cool. And then my wife looks and says, so what do you got to do next? Well, I got to tighten down all the screws before I, you know, oh yeah, well, so who's going to help you with that? Well, I don't know. My, one of my sons really quick goes, dad, there's about 3,200 screws on this deck, right? So I'm like, well, all right. I only have a few screwdrivers. So we handed out screwdrivers and we did. Again, kind of fun. We're talking and joking and stuff while we're doing it. And then that's done. And I go in, you know, for lunch and my wife says, so what's next? 
So I'm like, well, you know, I don't know. We got to put the, if you've ever done a deck and, you know, so you got to, I got to put the stripper on, right? So the whole thing about that is it's got to be, it can't be too hot and you can't have direct sunlight, right? All that stuff. So, you know, wait till tomorrow morning when it's cloudy and, and we'll put the stuff on and you have to let it set for 30 minutes and then you have to scrub for about three hours, right? Till you get it off and then you hose, 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 hose. And she's like, wow, you, who's going to help you with that? Oh, well, I mean, I guess a couple of you can help me, you know, because it's so much fun. So the next morning we get up and we do it. And of course, while we're doing, before we do it, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be so complicated. And then when we do it, I'm like, oh, that was really great. That worked out good. It went way quicker and it was fun. And then as soon as we're done, my wife says, so what's next? See, she just, wait, I'm like kind of going, you're, really? And she's like, yeah, I mean, um, well, we got to put the brightener, right, cleaner on there. Okay, who's going to help? So we go through the whole thing, the whole deck project. Now, by the time we get to the end of the deck project, I know what she's thinking. She's thinking I may have him trained now, right? In terms of like how he does, which then I, I had to go on to the next project and we had to kind of go through all that. But this is, this is what it made me think of as she and I talked about this. I, I'm the kind of person where um, if somebody says, hey, you want to come over for dinner or hey, you want to come to our party or you want to you go out, you want to do something, I'm always the kind of person who looks at my calendar and goes, oh, it's going to be a really busy week and there's a lot of stuff going on and then there's all the stuff I don't know about and something might happen. And, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we can do it. But here's the kind of person I am. I'll be like, yeah, I don't know. And then my wife will say, yeah, we'll do it. And then while we're going to the party or going to the dinner, I always look at her and I always ask, how long are we staying, right? So some of you are like that. One of you is, in the, if you're married, it's probably one of you says that when you're going there. How long are we staying, right? Are we staying an hour? Are we staying eight hours? How long are we staying? And, and my wife always says the same thing. Oh, no, we're not going to stay long, honey, right? Because she knows it means nothing, right? So I'll always be like, oh, I don't want to be there all night. I got a lot of stuff to do. I got to get home. And here's why it's kind of a joke in our, our, our household, because she knows that once we get there, will be the last people to leave, almost always. And it's not because of her. It's always because of me. And, and, and here's the kind of, this is why for her it's so funny. Like I kind of push back and I kind of resist by my personality being with other people. But once I'm with people, I love, love, love being with people. And I don't, and then once we leave, I'm like, that was so good. We have to do that again. And the next time they invite us over, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if we can do it, you know? And my wife just looked at me. And so here's the thing I've discovered, right? I, I, there's a part of me that resists it. There's a part of me, just the individualistic, you know, loner, you know, part of me that resists. But every time I get in those situations, I love being in those situations. And while I was working on the deck this summer, it was making me think a lot. In fact, I sat down for a few minutes and I read through First John. It's not a very long book. It's pretty easy to read through. And I read some stuff in there that yeah, now I know, you know, you've probably read through First John a lot of times, read through the Bible. But sometimes you know how you read something and you read it in a whole different way. It's just like so powerful and you're like, well, I never really fully got that before. Let me read just a couple of passages out of First John for you. That these, are, these are packed with meaning. In First John 1, 3, John says this. He's kind of starting off the book and he's you know, kind of laying out his case. And he says, now we proclaim to you. John's just writing to the reader. He says, now we're proclaiming to you what we have seen and what we have heard. So John's going to just share with them some firsthand experience. And then he says this, so that you also may have fellowship with us. So John says, here's part of the reason I'm writing this to you. I want to have fellowship with you. We, we, we've never met, right? You're reading this letter from a distance, but I want to have fellowship with you. And so that's why I'm going to share the gospel with you. And then he says something that's very instructive. And, and he says, in our fellowship, spe- he's speaking for, for him and the people who are with him. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then we, we write this to make our joy complete. So when you put it all together in First John, what he's really saying is this. Here's how it works. He says, John says, I have a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. So I have fellowship with God. Now, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have fellowship with God. Now, here's the really cool thing. If I have fellowship with God and you have fellowship with God, God joins us together and we have fellowship with each other. And what he says is, is interesting to me. He says, my joy isn't quite complete. Now, you have to think about this. Here's John who was a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
Here's John who walked with Jesus, uh, was part of planting the church and, and taking it throughout the Roman Empire, worked miracles, used by God. He had, he's had a really full life. We think he's probably in his 80s, maybe even his 90s by now. This is 2,000 years ago. He's an old guy. He's lived a long time. And John says, you know, there's just one thing that would make my joy complete. Not like if I could just have a little more doctrine, a little more theology, a little, no, that's not what he says. He says, what would make my joy complete is if we had fellowship together. Because I'm connected with the Father and you're connected with the Father. In chapter 2, he says this. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. Now, that's, we know that. We've read that. That's great. We're in the light. But then he says something that's really, I, you just have to think about this. And there's nothing in him that makes him stumble. That, now, now, just think about that for a minute. What he says is, if you, if you love your brother, and there's a big context here. He's not just talking about, you know, let's just love, love. You know, let's sit around and join hands and sing kumbaya. He's got a different kind of love in minor. But he says, when we love each other that way, in terms of sanctification, baby, you are there. It's really an interesting thing to think about. He says, there's no cause for stumbling in you if you really truly love your brothers and sisters in Christ. In chapter three, he says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. Right, so th- he's kind of, it's like a parent, you know, parents have you ever said, I, I've, if I've said this once, I've said it a thousand times, right? And then however you finish that sentence, clean your room or whatever, right? John's like, if I've said this to you, if, if you've heard this once, you've heard it a thousand times, but I'm gonna say it one more time. We should love one another. Now you don't keep repeating something to someone who doesn't need to hear it, do you? So he's just like, I know you know this, but I'm gonna tell you this again. In uh, later on in verse 18, he says, dear children, let us not love with words or with tongue, but with action and with truth. He says, let's go beyond thought. Let's go beyond words and conversation to a love that's, that's, that's bigger than that. In chapter four, he says this, some, some amazing words. He says, this is what love is. So you want, when he talks about loving other people, what does he mean by loving? He says, here we go. This is love. Not that we love God, right? but that he loved us. And, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. And we didn't love him. We didn't care about him. He wasn't important to us. He wasn't on our radar, but he came after us. He sought us. He came after us. That's what love is. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he makes this statement, an amazing statement. Just let this sink down for a minute. He says, no one has ever seen God. And he's talking about those of us who are alive on the earth. None of us have ever seen God. But if we love one another... Think about this. God lives in us and his love is made. And this is, this is crazy talk. His love is made complete in us. So this is not a all you need is love kind of thing. Let's just love, love kind of thing. When you read 1 John, I would, I would describe it this way. What John's calling us to is to community. And in fact, the word, the phrase I would use is what John's saying is what we need to do is we need to engage in what we might call gospel community. So we're going to use that term a lot. And I know it's kind of a, it's a term that's kicked around a lot in the church today, um, the term gospel community. But I want to talk about that in the series. In fact, I want to just take a minute and break that down. What do I mean when I say gospel community? Because I know we think about community where people get together and they do life together. But what's a gospel community? Well, Matthew chapter 9, uh, I want to read a, a verse for you here in verse 35. It's describing Jesus and when he's getting going in ministry. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and going into the villages and he's teaching in their synagogues. That's where the Jews would get together, study the word of God, pray together. So he's teaching in their synagogues and here's what he's doing. He's proclaiming, notice, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, in some of your Bibles, it probably doesn't say gospel. It says good news. And there's a reason for that because the, the word in the English that you know, we get gospel from, literally in the Greek, it literally means good news. So when you think like, what is gospel? Gospel is basically, it just means good news. But as you study the New Testament, it's a specific kind of good news. So here's the way one writer put it. He said, um, the gospel is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. We could stop right there. It's the gospel's good news. A little bit more, the gospel's good news uh, of salvation through Jesus Christ. And then we could, we could expound on that just a little bit more. It's the good news that God's kingdom, if you've ever wondered what the kingdom of God is, here's a way to think of it. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, thy kingdom come. And then he kind of defines it for us. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So anywhere where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that is where God's kingdom has come. So the gospel is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. The good news that God's kingdom, that is the, the sphere of God's rule by the grace of salvation, is open to anyone who puts his trust in the king. Or here's another way to think about it. Uh, we could say the gospel is this. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus exchanged and Jesus rose. That's another way of thinking of the gospel. Jesus lived. So we believe that Jesus was God come to earth in the flesh and he lived among us. At Jesus died. We believe that Jesus went to the cross. It was the foreordained plan of God for Jesus to go to the cross where Jesus, third thing is exchanged. Uh, the Bible says that he bore our sin even though he was without sin. He bore our sin on the cross so that if we place our faith in him, he will take our sin and he will give us, he will exchange it with his righteousness so that we can be right before God, have a right relationship with God. And then Jesus rose, proving that he has conquered sin, that he has conquered death, and, and that everything that he has taught is true, that he is in fact God in the flesh. In Colossians, it tells us this, for he, that is Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness, right? And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sin. So when we talk about gospel, what we really mean is this. At the gospel, at the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ. So we could say the gospel is the good news about Jesus. The gospel is centered around Jesus. For a church, for instance, to be gospel-centered or for a sermon to be gospel-centered, what we mean is this. We mean that it, it focuses on Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. To be gospel-centered means we don't focus on who we are or what we have done or what we will do for God. The gospel is very simply a message focused on Jesus, who he is and what he's done. So now if we want to take the word gospel and community and put them together, all we, all we really mean is this. A gospel community it's not just a team of people or not just a group of people who get together to have dinner, all right? It's a group of people who put Jesus at the center. So he's now at the center of that group of people. And, and this is important, and they commit to loving each other as Jesus has loved them, has, has loved us. That's what a gospel community is. It means they put Jesus at the center of their purpose as a group. They put Jesus at the center of their discussions, they put Jesus at the center of their decisions, of, of, of their meals, of their goals, of their actions. And gospel relationships are so important that when you read through the gospels, you'll notice Jesus talks a lot about relationships, doesn't he? Have you ever wondered why he spent so much time talking about people and forgiving people and accepting people and serving people and helping people? Have you ever thought about why Paul talked about it so much? and why, why James talks about it and John talks about it, it's because it's so vitally important to who we are as believers. Right? And in this series, I want to talk about that. We're going to talk about some of the implications of the gospel for our relationships, but we're going to talk about relationships in a very specific context. And that context is the context of grow groups. So here at Gateway, we have something we call grow groups, or maybe you're used to hearing them called small groups or community groups, but it's a small group of people who get together, and this is the purpose. It's a group of people who get together to put Jesus at the center and to commit to loving each other as Jesus has loved them. Now, here's what you need to know. These principles that we're going to talk about in this series, they will work wonders anywhere you have a relationship. These will work great in your marriage. They'll work great with your kids, with your parents, with people you work with, with anyone who's a believer. These are, these are principles that will really help those relationships. But in this series, we're going to talk a lot about grow groups. I'm going to give you eight principles for grow groups, and it's a four-week series, so we're going to just cover one today. And then we'll do a couple more next week and a couple more and then whatever's left. We might have to cover, I don't know, seven points by the last week, depending on how fast I can move. But today I want to talk about principle one. And the first principle, and even as I put it on the screen, I'll just apologize to all of you grammarians, but it's the best I could do. Um, principle one is this. We need to remember that me is we. I, th I thought of a hundred ways to put this, but in the end, this is just what I did. Um, and what I mean is this. God 
created you and God saved you to live in community. And I think one of the hardest things for us sometimes as believers is to, is to realize that the correct way to think about who we are in Christ is not to think about, it's not to think about me. It's always to think about us. It's about all of us together. And so I want to talk about that this morning. I want to, if I could make a biblical case for you about why this is so important, because I'm just assuming that at least a few of you struggle in this area at times, like I do, with kind of being a little me-centered and wanting to be a little distant and that kind of stuff. So I want to talk a little bit about that, and I want to start by talking about God, because I always think that's a great place for us to start any discussion. So the first thing I want to talk about is this, that community is really a reflection of God. And this is, this is really important. So sometimes when we talk about God, we talk about the Trinity, right? Any of you guys ever thought about the Trinity? Anyone ever like laid down in bed at night and thought, you know, just as I go to sleep tonight, I'm going to think about the Trinity. I'm, cause, cause that'll help you sleep really well, right? So like here, when I say Trinity, here's what I mean. This is one definition. Uh, now, in fact, here, let's do this because, and, and you can do the math as we go along. I'm going to have you fill in the numbers for me, all right? We'll try this. Um, so I'm going to say there is, and you'll say, all right, all right. So, follow, all right. so there is God and only God. And this, all right, so we, you got, we got one. One, one, one. We, all we got is one here, right? We just have one. This one God exists eternally in, okay, so at this point, if you're paying attention, this is what I tell people the last two services. If this is totally making sense to you, then you are not getting it, all right? So it's kind of a setup. You're not getting it no matter what, all right? So either, but here's what he says. There's, there's one God and only one God, and he exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are completely equal, each fully possessing the divine nature or essence. It's three in one. It's the Trinity. It's one God, but there are just one essence, but three in one. I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. But here's one of the things I wanted to point out. And when I first started working on this sermon last Sunday, I thought of it this way. This is how I was going to put it to you. See, God lives in community. Part of what the Trinity teaches us is that God lives in community. And then when I realized a few days later after meditating on this was, that's not right. In fact, it kind of completely misses the point to say God lives in community. It's way more appropriate to say God is community. And there's a big difference between those two. There's a big difference between saying God lives in community, right? God made the choice to live in community. God didn't make the choice to live in community. God is community. Can you see the difference between those? That's the point I want to make to you this morning, right? In the same way that God is community, right? God has created us to be community as well. And for so many of us, we think that living in community is one of the choices God gives us. And what I would say to you this morning is, that's just a, that's just a, a facade. It's not true, right? When God saves you, he has saved you. Now you, you are community. So again, thinking about God for a minute in the Trinity, in Matthew 3.16, every now and then we get these little glimpses and a couple of verses of the Trinity, and this is one of those. Jesus goes to his cousin John. John, the baptizer, lives out in the desert. John, I, he's kind of Jesus' weird cousin who eats bugs and, you know, lives out in the middle of nowhere. And it says Jesus came to him, and, and he asked John to baptize him. And when Jesus was baptized, so let's think about it. He's having a little party, a little gathering in the desert, and Jesus is there. And when he went up from the water, behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. So the Holy Spirit comes down to join the party. So Jesus is there, and the Spirit is there, right? Like a dove coming down to rest in him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. So this is the Father who's speaking. So now he's joining the party. So we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, when I read passages like that, and then I think about the fact that God is one, I realize how much I don't get this. It made me think of uh, Martin Luther put it this way, and I think he put it pretty well. He said, this whole doctrine of the Trinity is so far above the power of the human mind to grasp or for the tongue to express that God as our father, as the father of his children, will pardon us when we stammer as best we can if only our faith be pure and right. But by this term, however, we would say, that we believe the divine majesty to be three distinct persons of one true essence. And the reason that I bring this up, and the reason this is so important, is because 
when we start to read scripture, we, we, we discover some interesting things. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it tells us this. May the, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So now Paul's goal here isn't to uh, kind of label like here's, here's what the Father's like and the Son and the Spirit. Um, but he gives us some, some words to differentiate them. Like he talks about Jesus as being the, the one we get grace from. And that makes a lot of sense because of the work of Christ, we can receive the grace of God. He talks about God as being one who's full of love. He talks about the Spirit as being the one with whom we have fellowship. And we'll talk more about that in the series and why that's important. But when you study scripture, what you start to discover is this, that the Bible describes some of the activities of the various members of the Trinity. Like the Father, the Bible talks about him being involved in creation, uh, one who sustains the, the universe to this day. Uh, the Father has a will. The Father guides all events towards their appointed end. He governs all his creatures. He receives our prayers. He answers our prayers. But then when you study about Jesus and what he does, you'll notice something interesting. Like Jesus was also active in creation. And Jesus also sustains the universe, Colossians tells us. So in other words, it's not like, here's the compartment for the Father and here's the compartment for the Son. They kind of blend together. It's hard to differentiate sometimes. In other words, they kind of, you know, it's not like this. There's a partnership going on there. But then Jesus does things like forgive sin, intercedes for us, has the power to raise from the dead. Jesus was the part of the Trinity that came down to the earth and represented God. He's the one who went to the cross. He's the one who conquered sin and death. When the Bible talks about the Spirit, it says the Spirit is the one who indwells believers. The Father and the Son don't do that, but the Spirit does. The Spirit teaches, uh, speaks for God, intercedes, guides, gifts believers. And here's where the Trinity becomes so important for you and I on a practical level. All the way back at the beginning of Scripture, it tells us this. In Genesis 1.26, as God is creating man, he says this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, who is the uh, us and the are in this passage, right? Well, it's the Trinity. It's not angels. God's not talking to the angels and, you know, they're having coffee in the morning. And he's like going, hey, let's just make a, a race of beings that are like us, right? We weren't created in the image of the angels. We were created in the image of God. God, in, as the Trinity speaks and says, let us create man in our image, in the image of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, part of what it means to be created in God's image is that we were created for community just as God is community. Now, in the New Testament, there's a biblical term that's often used to describe who we are as a community, and that term is the term body, or the body of Christ. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, it tells us this, all of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. So this is interesting to me. He says, yes, there's many of you, and yes, you're all indiv- you have individual names and gifts and abilities and all that, but you understand that we, uh, that me is, is we, that we are one. He says, not, not some of you are the body of Christ, but every one of you together are the body of Christ. In other words, this isn't an option. This is something God does when you come to Christ. It's who God has made you to be. Uh, he says this earlier in that same chapter. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up the whole body. And so it is with the body of Christ. So what he says is, yes, we're all individuals, Yes, we all have unique abilities, history, gifting, all that stuff. But, but we are, at the same time, a body. And we are nothing outside of the body. We were created and saved, and we are placed in the body. We, we are community. This is a reflection of God in us. So when we talk about community and being a gospel community, one of the things we need to understand is that this is very theological. This comes and it extends from God and the Trinity. But there's a second thing I want to talk about for a minute when we talk about community or gospel community. And that is that that gospel community is also a global reality. Now, I I try to think of a good way to to put this, to phrase this, but it it felt a little bit like trying to define the Trinity. So I'll see if I can do this for you. Think of it this way. When Jesus started his ministry, so he's about 30 years old, Right? And one day he tells his mom, I'm going out, I'm hitting the road, mom, I'm starting ministry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. And so as he, as he goes, think about it. He could have done it alone. Jesus could have got up one morning and said, 
I'm going to refinish the deck, you know. I'm gonna, I don't need anybody's help. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to usher in the kingdom of God. Did, did Jesus need help proclaiming the gospel? Did Jesus need help casting out demons? Did Jesus need help uh, healing people? As far as I can tell, the disciples weren't as much help as they were just like, you know, work for Jesus, right? He's the one who did all the work, all right? And, but instead, we notice what he did. When Jesus started his ministry, he gathered a team, right? He's the one who sought them out. He's the one who loved them. He's the one who invested in them, forgave them, encouraged them, trained them. What was he doing? He was modeling for us. I, again, I don't think, if this makes sense, he wasn't trying to model what we, what we could be. He was modeling what we are. Some people read this and go, Jesus is trying to teach us we should be a team. I think that's missing the point. I think what Jesus was modeling was we are a team, right? He wasn't saying let's live in community. He was saying well, we are community, so let's just live out what we already are. So for three years, Jesus does this, right? And then you know the, there's the rest, there's the crucifixion, and now he's, he's been separated from his disciples. Um, there's the burial, uh, there's the resurrection, the appearance. Uh, then he hangs out with the guys for a while. And then remember one day they're all on this hill and he, he's talking to them about the kingdom. And then he's like, now nah, I got to go guys. I got some work to do up in heaven, got some building to do. And so I'll see you later. I'll catch you later. And then he, he ascends up to heaven. And then, so there's Peter and the disciples and they're hanging out. And during this time, um, some other people come around and now, so first there was 12 guys. And now we tell there's about 120 of them. And one day comes the day of Pentecost. Remember the day of Pentecost where the, the spirit comes down and Peter preaches this amazing sermon. And here's what happens in one day or in a short period of time, think of it this way. There's 12 and then there's about, 120, and then on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 more people get saved and they join the church. Can you imagine the change in dynamic in one day? Do you think there were any people like going, I liked it so much better when it was just 12, you know? I mean, like, ugh, now everything's complicated and everything's hard, and I like, just liked it better when I knew everybody. Who are these people? I don't even, well, I don't even know those people. I've never even seen them before. I loved it when we were in the old building, and now we're in the big building. What's this all about? Here's what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Now, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized. Now, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, so what are they going to do? Suddenly, there's 3,120 plus of them. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, whenever you see the word fellowship in the New Testament, it's almost always the word koinonia. And the word koinonia doesn't mean, hey, let's hang out and have coffee. It means partnership. So they were getting together and partner, partnering to, to, to do things. So they were, they were devoted to teaching. They were devoted to partnership and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They were selling their possessions, selling their extra stuff, their property, their goods. And they gave to anyone as they had need. So you just got to kind of picture this, right? Now the family of God has gone from... 12 to 40 to 120 to 3,000 plus, all right? Uh, now they're all family. They're all brothers and sisters. So what do they do? They do what family does. They get together. In this case, they get together every day. Now, what did the family do when they got together? Well, we're told they, they, they proclaimed the gospel when they got together. Um, there was baptisms when they got together. The apostles taught. There was fellowship. There was breaking of bread, which probably meant taking communion and also eating meals as well. They prayed together. They supported their, financial, or their family financially. But here's something to think about. Do you think that in that group, everyone knew everyone else? No. Do you think there were like, I don't even know that guy's name. I don't, even, I don't even know who that person... In fact, get this. When the church first started, a lot of people couldn't even communicate. They didn't even speak the same language, all right? So they're in this... But they're all family. It's, a, it's this global family. Even though they're from different parts of the world, even though they don't know each other by name, they can't... But this is this global family. And then, you know what happens. The church begins to grow and spill out of Jerusalem, but they're still one family, right? So think about it. They, when there was just 12 of them, they were family. When it was 40, they were a family. When it was 120, a little bit bigger, but they were still just one family. And, and now there's 3,000 plus, and they're, but they're all in Jerusalem, they're one family. Now they're moving, and they're going to Antioch and different areas. And, but here's what the Bible says. It says that we're still one global family. 
All right, and that's important for us to remember that the church is universal. The church, when we talk about the church, what we mean is the church is made up of believers in this room, but the church is also made up of people who were here last night. I know you're probably wondering, can people who come to church on Saturday really be saved? But yes, we have people who come on Saturday and they're, they're saved. That's a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. <laughs> and, and then here's something that you might find shocking. There are people who don't even go to church here and they're, they're actually saved. There are people who go to other churches. Did you know that? They go to other churches, but they're saved. They're like your brother and sister in Christ. And you might be like, I don't really know about that church, and I'm not sure about their doctrine, and do you hear the songs they sing? But if they're in Jesus, they're your brother and sister in Christ. And then we have brothers and sisters who live in other states. I heard there are, there are Christians in Portland, I don't know, and in Seattle, and in other parts of the world. In other words, all of us who are in Jesus, we are a universal family. And, and here's what you need to understand. We are not just united with an idea. Our unitedness is not just a principle, if this makes sense. There is something, the, the Holy Spirit in me and the Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit in believers in other parts of the world, people you have never met and you will never meet in this life, and yet we are family. And that's that's an amazing thing, and it's really super cool when you experience it on a personal level. Like, uh, I've gone to um, Nicaragua and uh, three times with some people from our church, and each time, here's what inevitably happens. Go out to the farm, and I get there the first day, and we're unpacking the van, and I'm kind of going up, and, I'll, and maybe some guy will walk up to me, and I've never seen him. I don't know his name. We don't speak the same language. We don't, you know, we're completely different, never met before. And he walks up, and he'll say, hola, pastor, because he knows, and he'll shake my hand, and he'll give me a hug. And we can't, we don't even speak the same language, but as he hugs me, and I hug him, I can feel there's something in me that says, this isn't just an idea. We are, we are connected through the Holy Spirit of God. And then we go, and we dig a ditch together, and we try to talk to each other, because we're brothers in Christ, even though we'd never met before. But now, here's the thing you have to keep in mind, all right? So there's this universal church. People live all over the world who know Jesus Christ. And the the thing about the universal church is it's something we can know about, if this makes sense, but it's not something we can live out. None of us will have the luxury in this life of traveling over the entire earth and meeting every believer and connecting with them and loving them. We We got other things. We got decks to refinish and stuff like that. So that's why... This is so important, all right? And this is, now we're getting down to what I want to talk about in this series. That's why what we're doing is so important at our church and so many other churches because community isn't just this this global reality. It's also something that God wants us to do. It's something he wants us to practice. And that's why the local church gets together. Now, Having a gathering of 3,000 people is great for some things. It's, it's great for worship. I love being in big crowds of people. And I know we all probably have different opinions, but I love it when the church is big and there's lots of people singing and there's, you know, and there's enough people singing to drown out some people. And the band is big and the band is loud and the worship is big. I love seeing that. It could be a great place for teaching. But a big crowd of people is not good for other things. Like if someone walks into church in the morning and they're just hurting, okay, it's not necessarily the greatest context for someone coming up and putting their arms around them and just loving them. One of the, one of the hard things about a, a church in a big setting is it's easy for someone to come in alone and leave alone. Isn't that true? And it's easy for that to happen. And that's really not, that, that's one of the downsides to just having a big church service together. And in Acts, it goes on and explains a little bit about, so what do we do about that? What do we do about the tendency that, that some people could just come to church and be anonymous and, and maybe they come and they need prayer or they need to be loved or they need a meal or they need whatever and they, there's a chance they just won't get it. And I can guarantee you it happens, I, unfortunately, it probably happens all the time here. So how do we get around that? Uh, again, picking up the story in verse 46, every day this, this large church continued to meet together. So they met together in the temple courts. But that's not where it ended. And then they broke bread. They, they, they had meals and communion in their homes. So, the, you know, it wasn't just like, okay, we meet, now we're done. Then they went in, into homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So there were the large group times, 
but there was also the small group gatherings. Where did that happen? It happened in homes. So you know what that tells me? You could only have so many people, right? It can only be so big. You can only fit so many people a house, and that's it. And you can only put so many people around a table, and we know they ate together. So that's it. These were small groups. Now, what did they do in these homes? When you read the New Testament, the, uh, the epistles, you'll find out in particular, they, they ate meals together. Um, they prayed together. That was a common thing they did. They studied the word together. They would uh, serve one another. They uh, ministered compassion to one another. They encouraged one another. They fed one another. They practiced hospitality with one another. Why? Because you can't do those things, right, if you're not with someone face-to-face. And these are more than ideas. Like, in other words, we'll put it this way. The local community is where we get to live out our global reality, right? So we could sit here this morning and go, it's so great to belong to the body of Christ. It's worldwide. And God says, it is cool. It's great. Right? But where are you going to live it out? If you read, for instance, the New Testament, you'll discover roughly about 57 one another phrases in the New Testament. Things that God tells us we're supposed to do. Things like love one another, serve one another, build up one another, admonish one another, accept one another, give preference to one another, and it goes on and on and on. Here's the whole deal, all right? It doesn't say just study what it means to love one another. Just, you know, preach a sermon on how to forgive one another. It says you're supposed to actually do it. You're actually supposed to love one another. You're actually supposed to accept one another. You're actually supposed to speak truth to one another. You're actually supposed to be kind to one another. It doesn't say just talk about hospitality. Open up your home and it says practice hospitality, right? So these are principles to practice 57 one another's in the New Testament that we're not just supposed to know, but we're supposed to to practice them. So, So a gateway, we're trying our best to live out this New Testament model. Now, I'll tell you that when I first came to the church and when we met next door and when we had one service, it was a lot easier back then. For instance, we used to have a lot of potlucks back then. And here's the deal. When you have one small group of people who meet every week and everyone knows everyone, it's so easy to do certain things. It's easy to have potlucks. It's easy to have events. It's easy to hang around after church and for everyone to know each other. It's easy to do it. And then when the church grows and you move in a bigger building, you have, three, you have three services, it's easier for people to go. And I'll get this sometimes. I liked it better when we were small. I liked it better when I knew everyone, right? I liked it. And I, I'm sorry, it's hard for me not to hear like, yeah, but I do understand where we're getting at, right? Because it, I'll, I'll just say this. It is better. It is better when we know people. It is better when we're connected with people. But I can guarantee you this. It would never honor God for us to go backward, and do that. So the question is, what do we do? That's why Gateway, we have something we call grow groups, all right? We have our large group time. That's what we're, you know, what we did last night, and we did it at 9.15 this morning, and we're doing now. And, and we worship in here, and we pray in here, and we teach, and we have communion, and we have baptisms. And, all right, but we, this is not enough. And I can just tell you right now, just, just from church last night, and 9.15, and 11 o'clock, I can tell you that for, for some people who came here today, this was I hope it was good, but I can tell you this, it was not enough. Because we have people come today, probably more of us than knew it, who need more than this. We, there has to be a place for us to sit down with someone who will pray for us. We need someone to sit down and to talk to us. We need to share our burdens, to share our struggles, to confess our sins, to practice hospitality. We all, we, we desire that, we need that. Even if our personality kind of rejects it a little bit, we know in our heart. It's good for us, and we need it. So at Gateway, we've, we've adopted a strategy to practice gospel community, not just to talk about it, not just to do a series on it, but to practice gospel community, and we call that grow groups. In fact, we'll just define a grow group this way. A grow group is a small group of people, this might look familiar, who put Jesus at the center and commit to loving each other as Jesus has loved us. So here's I, you don't need another team to be on. You don't need another meeting to go to. There's plenty of those that you can go to. That's not what grow groups are about. Grow groups are a place for people to gather and put Jesus at the center and to love one another as, as Jesus has loved us. So here's our strategy with grow groups. We meet on the weekend, we have services, and then we have grow groups that meet in homes uh, all, during the week, at night, some during the day, some on the weekend, some will be meeting this afternoon. 
And in those homes, that's where, that's where the, the loving one another really begins to take place. Think of it this way. When I was in college, sometimes I had classes where there was a lecture and then a lab, right? And in the lecture, you sat and you listened. Sorry, that's kind of guess what you're doing right now. You listen and you take notes. And I think there's going to be a test. And then you go to the lab and that, the lab's cool because the lab's where you get to do it, all right? Now I don't have to listen to someone talk about it. I get to actually do this stuff. And that's kind of what grow groups are, are all about. So in our church, we look, we, we look for people who God are, is raising up to be grow group leaders, which by the way, if you're in here and you think God might be raising me up to, be, to lead a group of people in my home, we are really looking for some people right now. And then we, we train, support, we try to find a home for them to meet in and get people going to that group. So what does a grow group look like, all right? Um, well, so about a week ago, I got together with a guy in a church to have coffee, and he called and said, I really need to, you know, I need to talk. And I just sensed, like, there was something really heavy on his heart. So, you know, I'm like, okay, yeah, let's get together. And, you know, anything you want me to be thinking about? No, no, I just need, you know, get together. So we get together, we have coffee. And so for like the first 30 minutes, it's just chit chat. And I can tell he's damned. He doesn't want to talk about it. So finally, I'm like, look, there's something really, really heavy on your heart. It's hard for you to bring it up. What is it? Just bring it up. And he says, okay, here's what it is. And I tried not to laugh when he said it, but he's like, my wife and I have been thinking about being in a grow group, but we're really, we're kind of scared. Like, what do you do? groups? Is there like, is there a hazing? Is there an initiation? Like, what do you do in grow groups, you know? And so and I'm kind of like, okay, well, so I just explained to him, here's what we do in our grow group, right? We, we meet in our home. We get together on Thursday at 6.30. Everyone comes over, and the first thing we do is we eat, right? Because I just, I like it. So we get together, and we eat. But here's the deal. While, while we eat, Jesus is at the center of that meal. So we start by, by talking to him and, you know, praying for the meal. And then as we talk, and I don't say, okay, it's, it's dinner time, kids. And now here's the goal. Here's the assignment. Everybody talk about Jesus at dinner. I don't, I don't have to do that. It just naturally seems to happen. They're talking, we're talking about our kids. We're talking about life. We're talking about stuff. And, and Jesus is just all the center of that. And then when we're done eating, uh, we gather in the living room um, and then we, we, you know, we pull out the sermon notes, right? Because uh, we put a guide together. You've got some, in fact, on the back of your notes today. And we kind of, I say, you know, any questions you want to talk about, things you wanted answered. And so in my group, it's a little different. Like first they, you know, rate the sermon and, you know, tell me you could have done better here and didn't really like that story in there. No, they don't do that. They don't do any of that. But we kind of, we talk about the sermon and they answer some questions and people just relate it to their own life. Here's what it meant to me. I could use some prayer for this. Here's how this worked. I could use some accountability. We talk about it. We dig into it. And then we just, we take prayer requests. And then we pray for one another. And then we end the way we started. We, we eat some more. And then we go home. And that's, I mean, that's what we do. Now, every group's a little different. Some groups pray more. Some groups study more. Some groups eat more, you know. But the one thing every group has in common is Jesus is at the center of that group. And that's what our grow groups are all about. And we're very serious at Gateway about grow groups. So serious, in fact, that we're taking four weeks to talk about this. And, and you'll be hearing lots of stories and videos and all sorts of stuff about grow groups and why they're important. So here's what you need to know. If you're in a grow group, all right, then you're, you're golden, right? You're just like, all right. And I know some of you are in groups that kind of went in hibernation for the summer. Our group, we actually started this summer. I thought, what could be a better way to start a group than around a barbecue? So that's what we did. And so for us, it's going to be hard because we've only met in the summer. And I hear winter, you know, like fall's coming. And we don't even know actually what it's like to have to be inside. But we'll find that out, I guess, and, and do that. But um, we really want everyone to be in a group uh, as our pastoral staff. Everyone in our, in our pastoral staff is in a group. We're all involved in leading groups. As a, as a church, we have grow groups going on right now next door for our grade school kids. They get to be involved in grow groups, and they're doing that right now. We have grow groups for middle school kids, for high school kids, for college kids. We have a group called the, called the Junk Drawer. We have one for them. We have one for adults. We have one for parents. We have one for parents. Um, we've got all sorts of grow groups in our church. Uh, but in this series, I want to just kind of close this way. So the series is called The Fridge. And if you've come to Gateway for, you know, like a little while, you're probably familiar with that term and what I mean by that. When I talk about the fridge, it's kind of a metaphor, if you will, for the kind of relationships we're looking for in grow groups. So um, a week ago, when the weather was nice, um, I was out in my front yard mowing my lawn. And as I was mowing the lawn, I had some neighbors come by and they drove by. And so maybe you have neighbors like this. They slow down. And they waved, right? 
but they keep driving, right? So they're just like, I'm not stopping. I'm not talking to him. So they slow down and they wave and they go on their way because they got things to do and people to see, right, I guess. And uh, Dexter finished. So they go on their way. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, we all kind of have relationships like that, don't we? People that we see. In fact, you probably had a whole lot of drive-bys coming into church this morning. And you will be when church is over. You're going to see someone and go, hey, you're going to kind of like, I'm not rolling down the window. I'm not slowing. I'm not stopping, but I'm going to wave as I go by. And that's okay, right? Because we, we can't talk to everybody. There's not enough time. But we have a lot of those relationships and those are good. And then, and then as I was mowing my lawn, I had somebody drive by from church and they actually slowed down, rolled down the window and stopped and said, hi. Now he didn't get out of his car and I turned off the lawnmower. And so I kind of talked from the other side. And so that was kind of our, like, that's a different kind of relationship, right? A little bit, a little bit deeper, but he wasn't getting out of his car and he wasn't even going to turn off his engine. And so we talked for a few minutes and then he was on his way. That's a little bit deeper. And we all have some of those too. Like maybe after church, there's some people you won't just wait till you'll stop for a minute. You'll be like, how? How's it going? And you know, how's the weather? And okay, it's not good. All right, so there we go, right? And you have some of those. And then I, I thought about it. I'm like, now we have some friends. Um, they'll drive by and I won't be in the yard. I'll be in the house and they'll just pull in the driveway. They didn't call ahead of time. They pull in the driveway and they come up to the front door and they knock on the door and I answer the door. And we have friends like this and I'll be like, oh, hey, how are you? And they'll say, good. And then they'll say this, I don't want to come in. I, don't, I just wanted to stop by and say hi. I want to see how you're doing and tell you I'm thinking of you and stuff. And we'll have a little conversation at the front door and then they'll go on their way. And then we have some friends who know this, they know that we don't lock our front door. And we have some friends that kind of, they'll, they'll just pull in the driveway. Most of them are teenagers, actually, and they'll pull in the driveway, and they won't even knock on the door. They'll just open the door, and they'll come in, and they'll sit in the living room, right? They'll just make themselves at home. Sometimes I'll just be working, and I'll just look up and notice, oh, wait, where'd you come from, you know? And they're there, because that's the kind of relationship we have. And hopefully, you have some relationships like that with people in your life. They just stop by your office. They just come by wherever you are. And those are, those are great relationships. But the fridge relationship is, uh, in my mind, it's just the deepest kind of relationship, if you will, as a metaphor. See, the, the fridge people, this is what they do. They, uh, they don't call in advance. Um, they pull in your driveway. They walk through your front door. If your door's locked, they know where the key is and they unlock it. And they walk in the house. They wave to you as they walk by the living room and they go straight to the kitchen. Now, I wish we had a fridge. We don't have a fridge in here. I wanted to bring ours, but my wife said we needed it. So we have like this little mini fridge and I was hoping Bill would put some Ben and Jerry's or something, but there's nothing. In fact, it's not even plugged in. And, but we have people, and maybe you do too. They walk right past, they walk right into the kitchen. They open up the fridge. They see if there's anything that they like. They pull it out. They help themselves to it. And they walk back in the living room and sit down. And then you talk. And um, I was thinking, we were at somebody's house a few weeks ago. And when we got to the house, they said, hey, if you want anything to drink or eat, just help yourself to whatever's in the fridge. And I remember thinking like, I don't think I know you that well. <laughs> you know, like, I'm a little uncomfortable just going and helping myself to anything in the fridge. But we do have relationships like that. That's what we're looking for in grow groups. That's what we're looking for in gospel community. People who are so comfortable, who know each other so well. You can't have a, I mean, obviously your life would fall apart if every single person who drove by your house did that, but you at least need to have a few people, don't you? Who you, you are so close to, who you are so comfortable with, that you're comfortable walking into their house, seeing what's in their refrigerator, and then just sitting down and doing life with them. And there needs to be people who feel that comfortable with you as well. We need that. Right? Because what God has called us to is not just the idea of being a gospel community, but to actually living out being a gospel community. So in this series, we're going to talk about eight principles for building meaningful, life-changing gospel community. And the first one is this. You need to realize that me is we, that we've been created in the image of God, not just to do relationships, but he, has, he saved us into a community. 